Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. So this podcast is all about two topics most folks don't know how or don't want to talk about, death and grief. Today, we're bringing you the first in a series of episodes about yet another not-so-popular or comfortable topic, money. I don't know about you, but I've gotten a little more comfortable asking people questions like, what did your person mean to you? What do you miss about them lately? What's been the hardest part since they died? But I'm definitely not comfortable, or at least not yet, with asking, how did the death impact your finances? Or how has your relationship with money changed since they died? But I'm working on it, and not just because of this series. I'm working on it because you don't get through life without grief, and you don't get through life without dealing with money. So it makes sense that money and grief would be intertwined. This Grief and Money series is sponsored by Inroads Credit Union. Inroads is here for you. You can visit inroadscu.org to learn more. Okay, so for this first episode in the Money and Grief series, we talk with Robert Pardy. Robert was in college when he first met his soon-to-be wife, Desiree. She was like no other woman he had been around, opinionated, intelligent, and fiercely ambitious. Just as their marriage was getting started, with Rob working in the finance world and Desiree making her way through medical school, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was only 31 at the time. Over the next 11 years, Rob was her constant, as a husband, caregiver, and intermediary between Desiree and her medical team. During her time living with cancer, Desiree became a leader in palliative care, and she wrestled with her personal desire to pursue aggressive treatments for her own illness while supporting patients to accept the end of their lives. When Desiree died, Rob was unmoored. He returned to his professional life in finance in order to pay off the medical bills that had accumulated. But when he achieved that, he knew he needed a change. He packed a bag, moved to Italy, and started a new chapter as a life coach and an author. His book about Desiree is entitled Chasing Life, and it was published earlier this year. Rob and I talk about his great love for Desiree, how their marriage grew and changed, the financial toll an illness can have, and how her death sparked a shift in his values and perspective. Rob, thanks for being part of Grief Out Loud. I'm really looking forward to all the things we're going to talk about today in our conversation. Uh, this is this is an honor for me. I know your podcast, so this is great. And let's start with talking about your wife, Desiree. Tell us a little sure. bit about her. Okay, so um, Desiree, I'm, I do call her my wife. I still call her my wife. I met her very early on. She was 17. I was 19. We met in university at uh, Stony Brook University. Honestly... I had a vision for my life. So that vision really included me being single and (laughs) just pursuing a certain direction. 
And um, she showed up and pretty much she knew she wanted me, let's say, and um, pursued it. And I'm glad she did, of course, because it changed my whole life. But it was very funny when we first met. I was like, who is this girl? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you've uh, in our other conversations, you've talked about how Desiree was really different in a lot of ways than maybe the culture that you grew up in and the expectations for how women and wives were supposed to be. Yeah, so I grew up in a very Italian-American family. And, you know, I grew up where the men sat at the table and the women cleared the dishes. Here I meet this very ambitious, uh, strong-willed, very determined young woman. And from the very beginning, I was not used to someone sort of questioning things that I would think or say. Um, And she had opinions on everything, which which was great as well, because I think a lot of how we developed our relationship, especially being so young, by challenging each other, we built this great team, but 100%, I was sort of, that's the whole thing when I first met her, you know, as a joke, let's say, you know, that was the age of Ronald Reagan. So she would be like, and I was an economics major and she was like, Ronald Reagan and economics. What are you kidding? I'm like, are you really just questioning me (laughs) right now? Are you, are you putting that on the table? Because, you know, I'm not used to that. Women don't talk about politics in my family. And you were married for just a few years when Desiree received her first cancer diagnosis in 1998. You know, she was only 31. How how did the diagnosis change or not change your marriage? Wow, great question. Um, and I'd say, honestly, it enhanced our marriage. And I know that's going to need some some explanation there. You know, look when when you're young you grow up together to a certain extent. And there were definitely, you know, we, we had our issues for sure. But by that point, we had really solidified what we believed a relationship was, what we believed marriage was. I was offered a job at that time, right before, and um, it would have taken me out of the country. And we talked about the strength of our marriage and everything that was surrounding a decision of that magnitude. The diagnosis in and of itself, and I think most diagnosis, at least I would say people that confront this, a diagnosis brings to light the unnecessary and it clears the table or it could clear the table if you're open to it, to getting rid of things that really don't serve the relationship, don't serve the person, maybe get in the way. And so that's what I mean about it enhanced it because Our communication was much better. Um, She asked me to be her surrogate, not necessarily her caregiver at the beginning. She was very autonomous and independent and very young, um, but she didn't want to know anything about her disease, which was interesting, her diagnosis. And so she asked me to make a lot of the decisions. That in and of itself had a big impact on how we interacted and the trust she had to have in me And the sacrifices I was willing to ensure she achieved her goals while being in the tempest of the diagnosis and the treatment. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little more about that decision, Desiree's decision to have you be the kind of the intermediary between her medical team and the decisions that that 
you know, got made about her treatment and, and course of action. And, and Desiree was a physician. And so it just seems so unexpected that someone who's in the medical profession would say, no, I don't want to know anything. You talk to them. You tell me what we're doing next. And how did she make, well, I don't want you to speak for her. Like, what did you think of that, I guess, is the question. And I could also speak for her in, in, in this as well, because this was not unusual for Desiree. Desiree followed a very interesting philosophy of how she approached life. That was really to not judge anything or anyone, including herself. An example of that is she didn't know her GPA from university. She didn't know her scores on the MCATs. She asked me to fill those out on her applications because she only ever wanted to know she was doing her best and she didn't believe in outside judgment about her best. Now, I know that some of that is definitely tied to her childhood and, and certain things, but that was her philosophy. So when she was diagnosed, she was pursuing an MD-PhD and the way it works is, or the way it used to, I don't know anymore, was two years of medical school, PhD in the middle, and two years of medical school at the end. She was diagnosed right after she completed her PhD. The doctor, she actually was diagnosed in Dubai. I had taken a job in Abu Dhabi. She decided to take a year sabbatical before going back to medical school and finishing the program to come live with me and experience the Middle East. And to do that, you need a medical screening. Now, this could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but she had found the lump a year before. And her gynecologist at the time, and I don't fault anyone because the late 1990s, a 29 or 30 year old woman with a history of cystic breasts and no history of breast cancer in the family would never have been screened for breast cancer. So the doctor basically said, don't worry about it. When she was in the Middle East, we decided to get it checked and that opened up you know, within the course of a couple of weeks, her having a radical mastectomy. The doctor, not because of the Muslim nature of the country, the doctor was Egyptian, but he was um, trained in the United States. He was young himself. And I think he didn't necessarily know how to break the news to this young, vibrant woman. And he told me first. And I actually said to him, let me tell her, because I had already known how Desiree dealt with certain things. When I told her, I asked her, I said, what do you want to know? And she said, only the next steps. She said, Robert, I know enough to be dangerous to myself and I'll need you to handle this. To the point where when she was in medical school studying, when it came to a chapter on oncology, she would actually ask me to read the chapter and to summarize it, taking out the breast cancer information. So being unusual for a doctor, probably, but she knew the, the other side of it, that maybe she would second guess things. She was very clear on what she wanted. You know, she said, look, right now it's experimental, but they're doing stem cell transplants for breast cancer. I want to be part of that. She wanted to be aggressive. She explained to me what aggressive would mean. I was there to carry out her wishes but I wasn't necessarily making choices on direction. Mm. 
because the direction was there and it was, as she stated, aggressive. She defined quality of life. She that we had, and this is one of the reasons when you talk about our relationship, the conversations we had to have while we didn't have conversations about death because she didn't want to talk about death. And this is especially at the beginning. Um, we had conversations on what is a quality of life to her? What are important to her decisions, living standards, all kinds of things. You know, it was her career. And I like to believe that I was at least number two. <laughs> um, but you know, when you have those types of conversations, it does create a type of intimacy, which I think becomes very, very important because we could touch on this later, the impact that metastatic breast cancer, when it does, when it did return, had on intimacy, uh, physical intimacy. It, you know, it has, it has a big impact. The decision for her to ask me to be her surrogate was more, she knew she could be dangerous to herself. And so she was doing what she thought was the most logical. So maybe what's out of uh, an assumption of what might be true for someone who's in the medical profession dealing with their own illness, but very much in alignment with who Desiree was and how she uh, made choices and decisions, the path of her life. And then the other aspect that also kind of struck me as contradictory is that Desiree went on to become a leader in palliative care and medicine. So supporting patients who had advanced serious illnesses and in that work, oftentimes it's, again, encouraging people to really focus on quality of life and perhaps not choosing the most aggressive treatments because of the way that those can compromise the quality of life. And yet at the end of her life, Desiree kept choosing aggressive treatments. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, which it seems like a little bit of a contradictory juxtaposition again. Sure. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, Interestingly, she, she did. She wanted to use her, um, her knowledge as a patient in her field, and that's what led her to palliative care. She actually wound up being the founding director of palliative care at New York Hospital, which is where she received all her treatment as well. Uh, she did her fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's very interesting because first people confuse palliative care and hospice, and hospice is part of palliative care and that's what happens at the end of life. That's usually the last six months when there's no viable option to maintain or support life. And one of the things underlying all Desiree's decision was that you don't ever extend death. When you talk about quality of life, for her, quality of life was being able to work. And that, that really was number one, that was her purpose. Um, there was travel, there were other things that were involved. So regardless of her disease extending, it never really impacted any of that. Part of what she went around speaking about is that understanding palliative care is palliative care is looking at the person, looking at their goals, looking at their values. That's all part of the discussion. A lot of people don't have that option. And they arrive at palliative care a little too late. You know, it should be something that really is offered from the very beginning when someone is diagnosed with a chronic or terminal illness. We wound up finding doctors that practice palliative care, even though they weren't palliative care. I mean, Desiree, you know, she would 
we would get on, I would always be there for chemotherapy, but at the beginning, she would get chemotherapy in the United States. She told me to keep the job in the Middle East. We would get on a plane and we would fly out to the Middle East. And this is, she would wear a mask before masks became a thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, she would recover in the Middle East. Now, if you think about that in the late 90s, that sounds absolutely incredible. You know, the medical system today would probably talk to people, no, you shouldn't really do that. But her doctors found ways to ensure, not ensure because they couldn't ensure, but ensure we were active in preventing her from getting sick. And she was also taking that risk that, you know, if I get sick, I'm going to go to a hospital in the Middle East and that's fine. This idea of, of quality of life, it's how you define quality of life. And she had told me, she said, Robert, you know, look, with as aggressive as I'm being, if I ever reach the point where my body can't take any more treatments, I'm going to die a horrible death. And she knew that. So a long-winded answer to say that palliative care, to a certain extent, is to integrate the treatment to your lifestyle. And the fact that she never really was ever sick until the very end, honestly, she wound up getting chemotherapy. I woke up in the middle of the night, she wasn't there. I walked out into the living room and she was curled up in a ball with a black glad bag, basically tied to her face full of vomit. And she had cancer in her one lung, her peritoneum, her bones, and her liver for three or four years. And she never really missed a day of work. So I, we saw that, I saw that, and we talked about it. And I said, you need to get to a hospital. And she said, I don't want to go to New York hospital. And we wound up going to Mount Sinai. Now, I, she didn't want to go to New York hospital because she didn't want her dignity at all infringed upon because she knew she was, she had a bowel obstruction and that would require enemas and all types of other things. And she didn't want her colleagues working on her basically. But when we were in the hospital, she squeezed my hand. We always had this thing where we would hold hands and we would squeeze them as a way of communicating. She squeezed my hand and she said, Robert, I'm tired. And I said, okay, baby, okay, baby rest. And um, that was the last conversation we ever had because she was asking me to take away life-sustaining care for comfort care, that that moment had come and she knew she would never return to the quality of life she wanted. It speaks so strongly to how even though you were the one relaying the information, interacting with the medical teams, that she really truly was making the decisions all along the way right up to the last Right up to the, because there there were things that could have been done. You could have removed part of her intestines, and you know she could have had a bag, and that would remove some of the tumor burden. I also had some sort of injection that we would carry around that you know basically makes someone go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. It relaxes the bowels and the whole thing. But I was afraid. I knew enough by that point in time that I'm like, okay, I can give her this, and if she squeezes too hard to go to the bathroom, she could perforate and all kinds of you know all those things were going through my mind, but those were not my decisions. At the end, it was her body. And I was there to carry out her decisions and be the front man. But in the end, it was her body. And it was it did come down to that. No quality, it's not going to be the quality of life I want. And I'm extending death at that point. She realized she wasn't extending life. You know, there's an aspect of 
illness and death and grief that doesn't get talked about very much. Well, there's lots that doesn't get talked about very much. But the thing that I'm thinking about is money and the cost of illness, the financial burden of that, and wondered how that played out for the two of you, you know, during the 11 years that she was managing cancer and also after she died, just yeah, wondering how that played out for, for you. You know, in, in and of itself, a cancer journey, even with the best of insurances, is not, is not cheap. It doesn't just fall on the medical system. You know, you might start eating organic food. And I can swear that in the early 2000s, I was ordering organic food from California because it was hard to find you know, and buying the juicers and juicing wheatgrass and the supplements. Um, there was definitely the aspect of the co-payments and certain medicines not being covered. I had actually wanted to leave my job, to tell you the truth. I didn't necessarily love finance. Um, I was in finance because, just personal story, I grew up, you know, in an abusive relationship with an alcoholic dad. So as a kid, money was going to be the thing that was going to save me. And that stuck with me. But when she was diagnosed, it didn't make any sense for me because I knew that I wanted to be able to do some things outside of the system, you know, like supplements. Um, she was on, I would say, at the end of her life, she probably took 50 types of vitamins a day and just throw that, you know, each bottle is 20 bucks right there. That's $1,000 or if not more on just supplements. You know, I happen to be the guy that if she would say, Robert, you know, I'm a little scared. You know, what happens if we can never have a really good life again? I'd be like, oh, you want to go to Puerto Rico tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> credit cards. Yay. They got for credit cards. And I had a significant amount of debt when she passed away. Um, you know, we didn't have life insurance because we were so young. Funerals cost a lot of money, especially in New York City. You know, she was being cremated and I'm like, don't you have a cheap coffin for cremation? Mm. You know, I don't need to spend $8,000 on a coffin. So um, it, was, it was almost devastating. I was lucky enough to be able to go back to my job in Dubai to, to pay off the debt. I'm sure I could have worked out some things with the hospitals because, you know, she worked there. But I didn't want to do that because they cared for her so well that I wanted to make sure I paid. And then... You know, there's so much that goes into being a physical and an emotional surrogate and caregiver for your wife for those 11 years. And there's grief all along the way. And then there's the grief when someone has actually died. And oftentimes it's radically different. And could you talk a bit about those early days and weeks and months after Desiree died? Sure. Um, I'd also like to say that, you know, being the, the, the surrogate and the caregiver, and it sounds very odd, but I don't remember it being overwhelming. I remember falling apart when the cancer came back because I had to accept the fact that I couldn't save her. Um, I had to accept the fact that now there was a time clock. But during, I think it was just because I defined it with such purpose that it was the only thing I can, I was able to give her. And so I didn't experience a lot, let's say, of the grief then. The grief afterwards, it was very interesting because I didn't 
grieve, let's say traditionally. Um, I did a, a lot of crazy things. I don't know why when she first passed away, I asked the hospital if I could bathe her body. Now I'm a Roman Catholic. I don't think that is it has anything to do with the way I was brought up religiously, even though I'm not practicing. I don't remember something like that. But and I saw all the bed sores that she had gotten in just a short amount of time. So in a way, seeing that told me it was the, the right thing that she passed away when she did. I I was actually the one to put her coffin in the furnace because I needed to be there at the very end. So there in a way was an unusual type of closure. But what I realized um, about grief in general was as I started feeling these emotions, I was grieving a loss of identity. I was grieving a loss of purpose. Of course, I miss, I miss her every single moment of every single day. Um, it's 12 years, but I, you know, I, talk, I still talk to her. It was more the expectations I had for the way my life should have been. Who was I now that she had passed away? She was supposed to be the, the blonde, beautiful doctor, and I was supposed to be the investment banker living in New York City on the top of some big building, <laughs> living a yuppie lifestyle. That all went away. In, in a matter of moments. And I hadn't grieved that while she was sick, even though that had went away to a certain extent because we were never going to be there. I had to leave my job, for example, to take care of her. But what I realized for me was that grief came from a sensation of loss, of identity. And it, it took a while. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm a big acronym person. And so I was thinking a lot about the stages I had to go through and those stages of grief, uh, you know, they really were studied with someone that was actively dying. It wasn't necessarily the people that survive, but you, you do have anger and you do have guilt. And what I realized that grief for me was, was guilt. I had to deal with guilt whether I did the right thing, the wrong thing, all kinds of, you know, the decisions I made or, you know, forgetting to give her a pill, you know, down to minute little things like that. You know, could I have made her more wheatgrass, for example, rumination, um, understanding impermanence, letting go of expectations, and then fear, the fear of stepping back into life. That means stepping back in with the potential of getting hurt again. So, that to me was was grief, having to walk through those certain stages, which were all connected to my identity. It seems to be describing this process of being untethered, you know, untethered to the future that you had mapped out, untethered to the identity that you had created for yourself and for your relationship, untethered from that sense of purpose. And I think that's a, a part of grief that sometimes when it's happening, it's hard to put it into words, but that looking back and reflecting on it, of like, oh, that that's a big part of what was happening is redefining self, given the cataclysmic shift in context and circumstance. And you went on to further that cataclysmic shifting by changing your entire career focus and, you know, leaving finance and, and creating something new. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. And I want to say this is why your podcast is so great because untethered, that would be, that wouldn't have been a word that would have come to mind. And that is exactly it. Exactly. Just floating around 
um, you know, leaf in the wind type thing. And, you know, when, once, once I, once I paid off the debt, I couldn't, I couldn't get back. Everything had changed. My priorities have changed. My values had changed. My perspective had changed. And here I was, I was doing a great job, but it just was, I was just going through the motions of life. It's, it's a very funny story actually, but I, I watched Desiree really do the impossible. I mean, you know, metastatic breast cancer, getting a job as the director of palliative care, um, you know, defining the program, speaking around the world about around the world, around um, the United States about patient choice and palliative care and working free as a volunteer in India at a hospital while she was going through chemotherapy, because basically she had chemo every other week, almost those whole entire 11 years. So I watched her do all that. And I always had these lingering, let's say, dreams in my mind. And one of them was, was to live in Italy. I have Italian blood, so it was something that I gravitated towards. We had been to Italy. I always felt comfortable. But it was also where she spent her last birthday. We spent her last birthday in Rome and India. Now, here I'm in Dubai, and Eat, Pray, Love is in the movie theater. It was one of her favorite books, but... I never read it. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the movies. And the first scene is Rome. And the second scene is India. And I'm a blubbering mess. I'm like, someone's <laughs> going to have to call the police and just, you know, take me away and put me in a psychiatric ward because men don't do this in a movie theater. And it wasn't like, you know, such a moving movie, let's say. What that said to me was, there's other things to live. I bought a ticket to Rome for um, a holiday and I landed there and I said, I have to, I have to find a way to live here because one of the things I had always learned, I learned as, as a child, but I employed throughout Desiree's journey was what's next. It was this whole idea of not lingering in something that is out of your control is to look what's under your control and figure out what's next. I joke all the time that, you know, that Psalm, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the word there is walk. You know, you're not supposed to sit there, roast marshmallows, set up a tent. You're <laughs> supposed to walk and go through. And so I realized I was just going through the motions of life. And so I picked up, came to Italy, two suitcases, didn't speak the language, didn't have a house, didn't know anybody, didn't have a job. And if anyone's thinking, oh, well, the investment banker, I can just tell you, I wound up paying off the debt and teaching English for $8 an hour because I needed the $8 an hour. So it has nothing to do with money. I also, at that time, you know, I think a lot of it was also redefining an identity. And so, you know, learning a new language, becoming a citizen of a different country helped me find again that, that wonder of life. You know, there are so many possibilities. And that's where I came up with my own tagline, which I call possibility in action. But in that, I said, you know what? I always was interested in like psychology and philosophy. Let me go become a life coach as well. And I went back to school and, you know, became a certification. And I went back, um, became a life coach. And that started where I am today. It was because the one thing I learned in this entire process was you have to be active in life. 
And so overcoming grief for me was being active in rebuilding. And rebuilding doesn't mean moving on because we don't ever move on from what we lost. We move with it. It's part of who we are. It's the fabric of who we are. It's, it's you know, um, a, a stone in the mosaic of our life. Uh, and, you know, Desiree's a big stone. <laughs> She's the, the big stone <laughs> in the middle. Um, but, you know, it, it is moving forward and saying, okay, so what, what's next? What can I do? And a part of that, being active in life for you was recently publishing a book, Chasing Life. And it's a book about Desiree and her life and chasing her life. And I wondered, you know, there's the internal process of writing a book, expressing yourself in that way. And then there's the external process of putting the book out in the world and having the world react to your internal process. And how, how has that been feeling for you since the book was published? I wish it was a video because you would probably see a smile that goes ear to ear. <laughs> um, again, I'll use the word blessed because after Desiree passed away, um, a woman that we became friends with, and it was actually a woman that was receiving her treatment when Desiree was receiving her treatment, um, said to me, you know, you guys have such, had such an amazing life. Why don't you write a book? And I said, you know what? I'm just, I'm not there. And she said, well, why don't you tell me some of the stories, you know, because at least I can jot down some things because it would be horrible if you lose some of these stories. And that's the co-author on the book, Phyllis. She showed up a few years later and she said, here's a skeleton for a book. Hmm. And so the process in a way, the co-creation of that was someone coming in at the beginning, listening to me telling these wonderful stories about my wife, not necessarily me remembering things to write for a book. So it just, it made it a very joyful process because I was sharing the stories with her. Then actually writing the book itself was, this is going to sound corny. I re-met my wife. I fell in love with her more than I could possibly imagine. I feel like the 19 year old kid that, that met her and Putting the book out there, I'm thrilled to introduce her to, let's say, the world, and not everyone is going to like her. But I know that part of her mission was for people to talk about disease and palliative care. And what my mission became, my purpose became after her passing away, was communicating the fact that, you know what, we need to be conscious in life. We need to be active. We don't have to be defined by circumstances, which is basically the way I grew up, right? So that became the key message. And what chasing life means is not, is not chasing time. You know, Desiree, she was just about to turn 41 before she passed away. Actually, I held her memorial on our 20th wedding anniversary because she had wanted to have a big party for our 20th wedding anniversary. So um, she died a few weeks before her 20th wedding anniversary, and I thought that was appropriate. The thing about all of it was joy exists regardless of the circumstances. And so, you know, being able to present this story where she and I lived around her disease, around her illness, it wasn't the focus. The focus was life. And so if she 
passed away before her 41st birthday, did she live a short life? I think she lived an accelerated, joyful life. And I don't think life should be measured by time. It should be measured by joy. And that's really what chasing life means. So for our listeners who are thinking, I, I want to know more about Desiree, I want to read this book, I want to connect more with Rob and the work that he's doing now, what are some ways that listeners can, can find you? If they want to learn about the book, they can go to chasing, chasinglifethebook.com. They'll actually see one of our wedding photos. <laughs> and uh, if they want to learn about me, they can go to robertparty.com. One thing I would, I would say in all of this, because talking about grief and talking about death, and you know, we've giggled a few times, because for me, I, I've learned what impermanence means. I've learned what the journey means. And it doesn't mean that this doesn't stab at my heart every day, but I was really blessed to have had such a wonderful relationship with an amazing woman. But everyone's journey is different. And what I would say is don't stop journeying because something has happened. And it's those ordinary moments I remember. You know, it's not staying in a five-star hotel when we had money. It was that I remember her laughing our dog, you know, while he was licking her face or something, or him pulling her wig off and running around <laughs> the house with it. So we learned not to wear the wig in the house because he just loved to play with it. But, um, you know, and so it's those ordinary moments that make our life extraordinary. Well, it, it's such a powerful way to kind of come to the end of our conversation, because I think about what you just said of, you know, don't stop journeying, and that oftentimes in grief, there is a period of time of trying to continue down the same path after someone has died and then being like, oh, one, maybe this path doesn't feel like the same path it used to, or there's actual like obstacles. I can't keep going on this path because the person who was supposed to be on the path with me has died. And so the path is radically yeah. different. And there can be a, a, a transitional period of just being mad that you can't go down that path anymore, feeling confused about why this, you know, these are the steps I've always taken. Why can't I move forward and having to reverse and, and shift directions and that, you know, for listeners, hopefully giving themselves some space and understanding that there's a transition that happens in there. And that, that can be a big part of it is that protest of why can't I keep going down the path I had already envisioned. Um, so I appreciate, you know, the work that you're doing in the book that you wrote of holding out that hope that there are other paths to take and we can take those and still remember and, and love the path that we were on. 100%. We don't realize how many expectations we carry with us. We, we really don't sometimes, and it does, it takes time for them to bubble up to the surface. And then you realize, okay, that, that doesn't work anymore. We do live in a society, unfortunately, that doesn't want to talk about grief or loss or death. And everybody wants us just to get over it. There's no right way to, to go through this. But what I feel is don't stop living a life because we're here to live. Well, Robert, thank you so much for 
taking time today to talk with me, for sharing with our listeners, for continuing to share about Desiree in the world as someone that I think I wish I had got to spend some time <laughs> with her and uh, learning from her her drive and her ambition and her purpose in life. So thank you for you know making sure the rest of us got to get to know her a little bit too. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners out there, thank you as always for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does. If there's an episode that you'd like to share with someone, please do. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G is also our website where you can find all of our past episodes as well as our free resources and information about our programming at Dougie Center. So thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. And thanks again to Inroads Credit Union for sponsoring this series on grief and money. To learn more, visit inroadscu.org.